Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. That's right. There's a little Steve Miller there. Actually, we have some uh, public radio requirement to air a certain amount of Wisconsin content, so I think we just satisfied it. We don't have to have Scott Walker on this week. That's a plus, I think. Anyway, uh, we're going to be talking today about alternative history. Uh, imagine a world in which something went differently in the past. The, the lanyard of time got kinked in a slightly different way, uh, or maybe in a significantly different way. And as a result, a whole bunch of other things turn out differently. I mean, all of fiction is the exercise of saying, what if? What if there were these people who do not currently exist? What if they were doing these things? But alternative history, and it has various other names, uh, asks a very specific kind of what if. What if this particular historical event or series of historical events had concluded differently? Um, what would go? What would be different right at that moment? And presumably what would be different in the moments that followed. Uh, and we're going to begin uh, talking about this with uh, Ben Winters. Ben Winters is the award-winning author of many books, including the Last Policeman series. Uh, and his newest book is Underground Airlines. So um, first of all, Ben's been with us before for the Last Policeman series, although that was actually a show about what if an asteroid were to hit the Earth. Um, and you might be thinking, well, first of all, those books are so addictive. If you're looking for something to read on the beach this summer, uh, get all three of them and they're terrific. Uh, but you might be thinking, well, what could be more gloomy than that? <laughs> it turns out there are other possibilities. Uh, and so Underground Airlines is this amazing story. I just cannot tell you. I'm such a Ben Winters groupie. It's kind of embarrassing at this point. But it's, I can't tell you what an absorbing story this is. It does, in fact, suggest uh, a different set of historical outcomes. I'm going to let Ben, who's joining us from a studio right now, tell you more about it rather than babble on myself. Uh, ben Winters, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much, Colin. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. And lay out the the premise for the new book. Sure. Uh, Underground Airlines is a novel. It's set in the contemporary United States um, with uh, the significant difference that um, the Civil War was never fought. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1861, uh, and uh, the... Uh, slavery was um, preserved. And so it's the contemporary United States. It's, t- it's today, except that the slavery still endures um, as federal law and, and it, in practice in four southern states. So um, the book is set in the north. Uh, and the plot of the book involves uh, the Fugitive Slave Act, which um, in my novel, as was true in Antebellum America, uh, suggests that any um, escaped slave uh, must be uh, recaptured and returned uh, to their quote unquote owner. Uh, so it's a crime novel. It's it's a it's a thriller, but it is one that is sort of engaged with the issue of um, institutional racism in the United States and its its legacy in slavery. 
And then the narrator, we should say we also did a show uh, this year on unreliable narrators uh, and could have been on that show, too, because the narrator, although uh, he, in some in his own way, he's kind of uh, reliable, but he's an unreliable narrator in the sense he is a black man. He's a black man who escaped uh, the condition of slavery in the so-called hard four, the four states that still uh, do have slavery. Uh, and he's been converted into uh, a rather secretive division of the U.S. Marshal Service that runs around capturing escaped slaves, one of which he used to be. Uh, so he's He's got layers and layers and layers and layers of conflict uh, about all this and all kinds of demons that he's dealing with, some of which we don't entirely learn about until very near the end. Um, I guess the first question that I have about this is, I mean, once once you've got this idea, like what if, what if slavery didn't entirely go away? What if the institution were preserved within the, the context of uh, a contiguous, non-interrupted United States? Um, once you've got that con- concept, did you, I don't know, did you start gaming this out in on big, huge sheets of paper and poster board? Or, I mean, how did you begin sort of thinking out all the little consequences of this? Well, I actually really began with the character. Um, I had that sort of main idea in place, um, which was a direct uh, sort of uh, result of me thinking, as so many people are thinking and have been thinking and continue to think about what is going on in our country in terms of um, uh, particularly police violence against African-Americans, but also just um, the institutional racism that we still see in so many aspects of American life. Um, You know, we're so many years removed from uh, slavery. And yet it still feels like these things are going on all the time, things that remind us of of that terrible period in our history. So once I, I decided that this was going to be the novel, this was the world that the novel was going to take place in, most of my work was with the character, was figuring out who this man was and what kind of journey he was going to be on. Uh, and I think that the details that you're talking about, those details having to do with the... the, the um, the, the sort of bits and pieces of the alternate reality and the ways that the United States was different and and crucially, I think, the ways that it's the same or that it feels the same, uh, those things fell into place as I was working. Um, and they would they, they would reveal themselves to me or I would kind of discover them as uh, as I moved forward through the, the storytelling itself, through the plot itself, and through the heroes or anti-hero, whatever you want to call them, through his journey. You know, I, I do want to just explore that a little bit more. Um, I mean, there's a lot of ways that a project like this can fail. I mean, it can just fail if it's not a good book, the character's not that interesting, or it's not that, all the ways that anything uh, anything can fail that way. But for this kind of an undertaking, one of the other ways that it can fail is if that reality isn't immaculately imagined. And one of the things that you've had to do, uh, one of the tasks you set yourself, was this whole idea of imagining not the world in the middle of the 19th century when all these things happened differently, but this world now, how it would play acro- out across the spectrum of, of say, modern concepts of time management. I mean, slave, slaves aren't on plantations anymore. Not exactly. I mean, they are on some agricultural enterprises, but it's all now set against, you know, this really sort of 2016 world of being able to really, you know, monitor things very specifically, control environments in ways that uh, plantation owners could never dream of. And you've really dreamed this down to, I mean, one of the ways that reasons the novel works is it's so carefully and vividly imagined. So, you know, you're saying, yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, no, thanks, Colin. But I also think that, unfortunately, the reason it can feel so real is because there are so many aspects of contemporary life mm-hmm. that do resonate with um, with that with those times. Um, and in particular, what you're talking about, that sort of brutal late capitalist workplace efficiency and to talk about time management and how, you know, that there's a that, you know, our our work product is our time and the, and the, the goal of the um owners of factories and the shareholders in corporate systems is to squeeze absolutely as much labor for as little income, excuse me, as little salary as they can out of each individual. Um, And then, you know, as I was writing this book, I was reading, there's a book that came out uh, called The Half Has Never Been Told by Ed Baptist, who's a historian, I think he's at Cornell. But he, and and the book really, it opened up my eyes to the ways that um, slavers, you know, the owners of plantations, they were constantly um, innovating new ways of squeezing as much possible labor out of these men, women, and children who were their property, Um, treating them, in other words, as machines um, to be maximized. And, you know, there is this this bridge of time between then and now, but these ideas, the concepts behind them um, remain the same. And it's it's terrifying to think about, but it's true. And so when, you know, people read the section in my book that takes place uh, in a, in a, a plantation, what is a factory of a sweatshop, really. Um, what, what resonates with us is the sweatshops where people even today make clothes in Bangladesh or, or, or you know, other parts of the world where there are um, the, the child labor laws and the, you know, workplace laws are not there that we would wish. It resonates. It resonates. Um, and that, I think, more than anything, it's not necessarily a tribute to my cleverness as a world builder so much as the um, the ways that the world, as much as we would like it to change, um, does not change as much as we as we want. It's a great way to to put that. Um, there are also some things that I sort of wondered about. Whether I mean, for example, for some reason that it, it, may, it may there may be some connective tissue that I didn't see. For some reason, we own in this world more Pakistani or maybe Indian products. There are cars from Pakistan and cigarettes Pakistan. from pa- pa- from Pakistan. Is that did you think because A then B then C then D then Pakistan, or do you, did you just think well some things will be different that are unforeseeable? I wish. Two things right now, Colin. I wish that I were as smart as that, that I could have sat down and said, okay, well, here's exactly how the supply chains work. Here's exactly how the, what the global relationships are. But I think it was more, um, it was more a sense of, well, it, Virginia in my world and the world that I created um, and some of the other tobacco states did not remain, um, th- their course was changed uh, based on the facts of my of my story. So let's imagine perhaps that we're getting our tobacco elsewhere. Where are other places that we still have trade with? I have a whole, there's a whole business in the book, as I think might be true that the United States is the subject of numerous international global boycotts. We've left the United Nations in a huff, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and so I just, I wanted to give a general impression that it is a different world, that we have different global relationships. Um, my my hero drives a car that was built in Japan, but it's noted that he was only able to get it quite recently because Japan until recently did not trade with the U.S., things like that. Um, I am not, there may be writers mm-hmm who are better at this systematic approach to this sort of thing. <laughs> I don't think that I am one of them. And I also wish that I kept better track of how I made all these decisions because people do ask questions like that. Well, how did you come up with this or that? And I'm like, I, I don't re- really remember. It all just sort of happens as you're going. 
some of the trick, I think, is to keep enough things the same so that we recognize reality and, and yeah. enough things different so that it is an alternative history. So, I mean, Michael Jackson, I'm, I'm not going to do any spoilers. If anybody's sitting there worried we're going to spoil things, I swear to God I won't do that. I, I want you to read this book or listen to it as I did on Audible and just enjoy it. Uh, there's so much, uh, there's a lot of plot and a lot to be covered. So I'm not really wrecking anything. When I tell you Michael Jackson still exists, and he seems to be pretty much still Michael Jackson, right? Yeah. You know, I thought about that and some people said, well, come on, you know, <laughs> come on. So much is going to be different. But, you know, you think about an extraordinary, an extraordinary individual like that. And I have this feeling that a, a man like that with his talent and his sort of very special role in, in American history and, and, and frankly, as it has to do with race and the, and the relationship between um, African-American entertainers and white audiences and, and black audiences, uh, I feel like he would still get through <laughs> I don't know. Um, and he is, he is, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say he, uh, Michael Jackson is sort of a special place in the heart of my, of my hero as he has a special place in the heart of so many Americans. Uh, we're talking about Winters uh, right now. Um, you know, I was thinking about the allure of this whole genre or subgenre and, you know, why, why we're drawn to it. Um, recently, Netflix adapted Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, which is probably, probably kicks the tripwire that more historical alternative history uh, kicks uh, than anything else, which is what if World War II had concluded differently? What if the, the Axis powers were in control in, in a way that they obviously were not? Um, and, and then you come up with this. And these things, they're very addictive. It's a very addictive vi- vision to consume. And, and maybe you're the wrong person to ask because you're not the consumer, you're the creator. But I find myself thinking, or do we like it partly because uh, it's so much worse you know, there's almost no uh, alternative <laughs> history in which things are a lot better. <laughs> you know, there's so I wonder if we like it because we we can look at a version of reality as as screwed up as 2016 looks to us. Uh, this looks so much worse. I wish I could say that the the reality in my book is, you know is so distant from the reality in which we live. And of course it is. Of course it is. In in many ways, it's completely and terribly worse. But I think part of, for me, the um, the power of, of, of the book, for me as the writer, and I guess as, as the first person to think deeply in this world, was the um, the moral force of the idea that um, it's not as different as we as it should be. Right. Like the, we of course, um, you know, slavery was abolished in this country in 1863 and the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. And in 2008, we elected our first African-American president. And um, all of those things were triumphant goods in the world. And yet there are still so many things in our world as we keep seeing headlines of um, African-American men and women and children um, being uh, killed by the police. Uh, or we read about the higher incarceration rates that African-Americans face, uh, you know, fewer opportunities in housing and education and banking and, you know, you, you name it. Um, and we say, well, how can this be? You know, um, how, how, how is it that the world is still in so many ways we're still we're still fighting our way out of the legacy of slavery? So, yeah, totally part of what is um, what draws us into these worlds is this. I think you're right, Colin, is going boy, oh boy, well, at least we're not here, you know, at least we're, we're over here. Um, but I also think that what makes it, it, what, at least for me, I can only speak for myself in writing the book, what was valuable about it was not, wow, look how clever I am at constructing this version that's so distant from reality. For me, the point of it was, let's take a moment here to think about um, how far we've come, but also how far we haven't come. 
Um, yeah, I mean, eventually, I, I'm thinking between this and the last Leesman series, you can eventually sell like the box set of Ben Winters. Things could be so much worse. Uh, yeah, a fiction, you know. No, so if you don't like the way things are right now, uh, read one of these books, and and at least you can sort of see things coming out uh, a heck of a lot worse. I guess you know the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about this because yes, as I was uh, ingesting and consuming your book, all this other stuff is happening. It's always happening, but uh, modern events were grimly cooperative in some ways in terms of reinforcing some of the things that you're saying. And also up here in Connecticut, we had uh, a national story about a guy who was working at the so-named Calhoun College at Yale and became upset about, uh, you know, the stained broke glass. The window. Yeah, broke the stained glass yeah. window. And it t- touched off a whole other series about John C. Calhoun. And I found myself having conversations on social media from people going, well, John C. Calhoun was just sort of a product of his times. You can't judge him by contemporary standards, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking. Oh, the product of his times. I love yeah. that argument. Isn't that a delightful argument? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, first of all, at, at that moment, some of the forces that you were talking about earlier in our conversation, the ostracization of the United States internationally were beginning to set up because, in fact, the countries all around us were outlying, uh, outlying slavery. I mean, we really were getting to be in a much smaller subset uh, yeah. of nations where slavery was legal. It wasn't as though John C. Calhoun or anybody else would have been walled off from the moral arguments about this in, in any way. What, but what your book did was also remind me you couldn't participate in a system like this on any level, on any basis, without in a very visceral way coming into contact all the time with the horrors of it. In a way, this book, which is fiction and it's set in the present, uh, was, to me, a, a very, very penetrating reminder of just, you know, how horrible a system this really was back in the middle of the, the 19th century. Yeah, it's startling. It's startling. And it, I think it is actually something that is is useful for us as a society, um, contemporary America, to remind ourselves of not only the the cruelty that individual um, enslaved people suffered, but the the duration of slavery, the breadth of it, um, and and uh, you know this was not a period of ten years. You know this was hundreds of years, and and millions of people were involved, and um, and also that it just didn't. It wasn't just about the South. Um, actually, one of the the a piece of research that I did in this book was to read a book called Complicity that was written there in Connecticut yeah. um, um, by Farrell. staff members of the Hartford yeah. Current. And it was all about how the North, uh, northern states, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Jersey, New York, um, although uh, they were not slave-holding states and although many people in those states were abolitionists to varying degrees of being activist abolitionist, um, the economies benefited and individuals benefited um, enormously from from the slave trade. Um, and so that issue of complicity and the ways that we um, in, in that time with that issue and now um, in various issues, the way we allow ourselves the luxury of not thinking about and even benefiting from things that we know to be evil, uh, but that are happening to other people somewhere far away is, um, I think, a super important thing uh, to, to be mindful of. Um, and okay. it's something that I think I deal with a lot in the book. We're talking to Ben Winters, I, and I feel like we, we might be doing the book a disservice in the sense of shortchanging the fact that as, as grim as a lot of this stuff is, the book is uh, a thriller. It is a genuinely thrilling thriller. You are on, on some metaphorical version of the edge of your seat uh, um, a lot of the time you're consuming it, and and it works that way. But it also works a lot in the voice of your narrator, your narrator, a man of many names, but, maybe, but maybe no fixed ones. And he's a, a very compelling person to listen to and talk to and, and 
and, and hear from. Um, and he's also I mean, I, the thing I want to ask you about that doesn't fit anything that we just said is there's a way in which, like most narrators, he has a little bit of a sense of humor. You know, I mean, he has uh, a sense of the grim ironies that are all around him. And if all he could tell us was how grim they were, he'd be kind of a chore to be no with. Fun. Yeah. Right. But he is. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. I think that that that's an inheritance there. What you're feeling, that grim humor and that very dark um, humor is coming from the, you know, the tradition of this book is in a way it's uh, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and, mm-hmm. the, and in the noir tradition. Um, which which is also in my last policeman books that, you know, yes, this is, as we've been discussing, it's an alternate history novel. It is morally engaged with the great issue of our time, in my opinion, which is institutional racism in the United States. But it's also, as you say, it's a, it's a thriller. It's a mystery novel. And my hero, because of the nature of who he is and where he has come from and what he does for a living, maintains a, a sort of gallows humor and a, um, a way of looking at the world that is cynical, that is um, uh, um, world weary. Uh, but is nevertheless, hopefully, um, has some uh, the pleasure of comedy in it. And also, I think, for the book to be compelling and for us to root for him, despite the evils he commits, um, we have to like him. So um, there is a small, there's joy in him somewhere, there is hope in him somewhere, and it is that joy and hope that, um, that we, we grab onto with him. Um, I thought you were going to complete that sentence in a completely different way uh, when you said the tradition in which this book participates. I thought you were going to say the Jewish tradition because because you're a Jew. And one of part of the tradition is horrible things happen to you. You find some way uh, to to tell the story. And often one of the ways that you cope with the most horrible uh, historical events imaginable is to laugh. Uh, yeah, and, sure. And, and that's that's where I thought you were going. And I know that Michael Chabon's uh, book uh, about um, which is also Yiddish Policeman's Union, yeah, was one of one of your influences. I sort of thought that's where you were going. That somehow or other, laughter and 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 a, a dark sense of humor are invaluable tools for dealing with something like that. No, I like that. I like that. And I could have totally ended that a sentence by saying uh, the inheritance of this book is my Jewish tradition. And I do think that that is an important part of. Um, of the Jewish tradition and the Jewish literary tradition certainly is that well you just have to laugh. I mean you got to laugh. It's it's so terrible. Um, and uh, um, yes, the Yiddish Policeman Union, the Michael Shabon novel, um, hugely important book to me. Um, both as a, well, okay, I won't say both because there are three things: as a Jewish man, as a, a detective writer, and as a lover of alternate history. That book is um, it, it sort of gets me in all my in all my in all those places. Um, and was a big influence on this novel. For people who don't know the book, I mean, it takes place in Alaska. Uh, you just do the 30-second nutshell. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's set in 1998, and it's basically the idea of the novel is that uh, after World War II, instead of getting the state of Israel, the Jews were given this slice of uh, Alaska, uh, Sitka, Alaska. And um, so they've been there now since 1948. They're the, the joke is they're referred to as the Frozen Chosen. And uh, But now it's 1998, it's 50 years, and, and that slice is going to revert to the United States. And so the Jews, once again, are trying to figure out what they're going to do. And the hero is a detective. Detective, um, a sort of world weary uh, um, police detective, I believe yeah, he's a policeman um, who's trying to figure out uh, what happened to this rabbi's son. Um, the other way that I would uh, we're going to take a break in just a second, but I want to end here. The other way that I thought I was thinking about the question that I asked you is you have something of a background in comedy, right? You have you've even done yeah. stand up. Yep. A long time ago. And it seems to me that there's uh, within alternative history. Well, not within alternative history, but kind of on a parallel track to alternative history. A lot of comedy is 
basically that same question. You know, what if what if things were different? You know, there's a lot of comedians who set up what they're going to do. I think it might go something like this. And, yeah, right. And, and, and Thurber wrote, right. you know, Thurber wrote if if uh, if Grant were drunk at Appomattox, and by the end of the, and this is not a piece you can spoil, but at the end, it's a very short piece. And at the end, Grant is so drunk that he hands his sword to Lee and says, you know, we we could have whooped you uh, if I hadn't been feeling so sick or something like that. He doesn't yeah. even know which right. thing he's supposed to do. But I mean, a lot of comedy is there's a fa- I mean, there's there's even a subset of comedy that's that. There's a great Gabe Kaplan routine about what if uh, Ed Sullivan got drunk before his last show. You know that that what if what if things go differently? That's a there lot of a- a, there's a Saturday Night Live skit from way, way back in the day. I think it's with Dan Aykroyd where it's a show like this one where an interviewer is talking to someone about alternate history and they get into what if Eleanor Roosevelt could fly? That's right. And like that's the thing. It's like, well, nothing. I mean, it doesn't affect anything. But, uh, you know, it's like, sure, it's this is this. There's just these are different ways of looking at the world, you know, and um, and that's what comedy is. That's what that's what speculative fiction is. That's what all fiction is, as you said in your introduction. You know, we're, we're trying to look at the world that is and trying to figure out what the deal is with it. All right. We're talking to Ben Winters. Uh, the new book is Underground Airlines. We're going to take a break. We're, we have people who study alternative history. They'll join us when we come back. The king of knowledge of things. Revise your history. The king of knowledge of things. Revise your history. All right, we're back. Our subject is alternative history. Uh, with us is Ben Winters, joining us uh, from uh, studios elsewhere, uh, and he is the author of many books, including the Last Policeman series, which he has already talked about on our show once before, and the new book, Underground Airlines. Now joining us, uh, and by the way, I don't think I said this on the air, but I actually um, I, I listened to Underground Airlines as an audible book, and William Demerit, uh, the guy who reads it, is it's a tour de force. It really is his performance. Uh, of this book is kind of amazing. So if you're thinking about going audible, uh, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. For I a totally second. agree. He's yeah. terrific. He's amazing. So um, joining us now is Sherry Kramer, award-winning playwright and professor at Bennington College, Vermont, where she teaches writing workshops on alternative history. Uh, Catherine Gallagher, historicist, literary critic, and professor of English emeritus at uh, UC Berkeley. She's the co-author of Practicing New Historicism. Um, and so, Catherine, I want to start with you. Um, one of the things, one of the ways that alternative history is done is not by fiction writers like Ben Winters, but by people trying to learn the craft of history or practice the uh, the craft of history. So how how is doing that, uh, how is changing a, uh, an aspect of history and then playing it out useful as an actual act of, uh, of historicism? Um, well, a lot of uh, his, historians, practicing historians, actually kind of object to counterfactual history. So I think we should say at the outset that it makes its home among historians in certain specific places, especially in military history, Mm -hmm. um, uh, sometimes in economic history, places where you could crunch a lot of data um, and try to figure out what would have happened if you vary that data in different ways. Um, So uh, I think we, just to to sort of give historians their due, um, social historians and a lot of political historians and cultural historians don't found, find uh, counterfactual history all that useful. Um, so it really got its start in military history. And one of the reasons for that is that military historians were trying to figure out how to fight better wars. And so what they wanted to know was not only who won, but also 
what opportunities were perhaps missed, how the victory could have been better, how it could have been worse. So by the late 18th century, and certainly into the early 19th century, something called critical military history, history which is counterfactual history, in uh, pra- among practicing historians, was mainly there in military history. Um, but this goes back further than that, though. I mean, even uh, the Roman historian Livy writes something different, right? Doesn't he write uh, what would happen if Alexander went uh, west instead of east? That's right. He he uh, he's trying to uh, make a little thought experiment in which you could demonstrate that the Roman generals would have beat Alexander the Great um, if he had tried to uh, invade. And so that's a way of just sort of um, framing the strength of the Roman Empire at that time, figuring out where all the different armies were and how they could converge. So that's the kind of uh, question that a military counterfactualist would ask. Um, and so when, when did, I mean, you kind of already alluded to this, but in terms of the kind of thing that Ben Winters is doing now, uh, the, the novel in which some one little twist is made in, in the strip of history and, and then we see mm-hmm. things playing out, who, st- who started doing that? When did that actually become a popular thing? It's really thing? a post-World War II phenomenon. And the first American novel to do that is actually another Civil War novel. It's by a guy by the name of Ward Moore who wrote a book called Bring the Jubilee, um, which is the uh, counterfactual that the South actually won the Civil War. And then he um, asks what the world would be like. And it's a novel because, again, it has a person more or less in private life uh, exploring the alternate world for us. Uh, in, in 1952, though, that person is a historian. Um, so I, I want to uh, add Sherry Kramer to this conversation. Um, and, and so as we're kind of alluding to, Sherry, and you may, may have a better sense of this than I do. Um, you definitely have a better sense of this than I do. I feel as though 85 percent of this genre is exactly uh, the kinds of things that we're talking about, but very specifically World War II. As I began reading about this online and getting in my hands on, on anything I could read about it uh, as a genre, it seemed as though over and over again, you know, from Philip Roth to Philip K. Dick to probably somebody else named Philip, there are just a lot of novels about what if the Nazis won. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's big in our imagination, but it's also because um, I address the whole issue of alternative history in terms when I teach, and I teach a playwriting class in it, so they actually write plays that are alternative history, about the fact that it's choice and consequence and war and evil um, and good versus evil tends to generate tremendous amounts of, of choice and consequence chains. Yeah, that that makes a, a, a heck of a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to put you on hold for a second. I'm going to have a producer see if we can clear up your, your phone a little bit. So, But, Ben, imagine that you were talking to, and I'm sure you either have or will, talk to a class like the one that Cherry teaches, uh, a bunch of people who are about to try to, to write this way. Um, uh, any advice you would give them? What, what what would you tell somebody who, or maybe even a colleague, somebody, one of your contemporaries who says to you at a book conference, you know, I'm going to try one of those alternative history things. Any tips? I would, yeah, find the person. You know, the, the book is not about the world. The book is not about the alternate history. The alternate history is the the stage setting, and it's the, the sort of, it might give the thematic resonance, and it might give those, the sort of excitement of those moments of, oh, it's like this instead of this. But like any piece of literature, like any great play or book or or anything, what matters is the character or the characters. What matters is the journey of the individuals, um, and the, and because that's what's recognizable. That's what people 
um, feel and understand is what it's like to be a person in the world, even if the world is is drastically different or not so drastically different. And so, in a way, Catherine, that's a little bit different from maybe how a historian thinks about this, right? A historian's it's thinking very of, different, yeah. yeah. And I, I agree that the alternate history novel that is the uh, the work with a fictional uh, guide, a focalizer, if you like, or a point of view, does a very different thing in terms of building the world from what the historian does, um, because and, that person is able to look at the consequences for private people, the consequences on private life, and that's where the world comes from. It's from that interaction between the subjective and the objective consequence. And, and Bennett, also, you know, the, the, there's a weird overlap, or maybe a non-weird overlap, between speculative fiction slash science fiction and historical fiction, and you can see it in, in a bunch of places. I mean, I think we saw it pretty recently in, in 1122-63, which is Stephen King's novel. Yeah. It's not really exactly, oh, good, you both know this. I'll have you both talk about it. That's not really um, alternative history. It's about somebody going back in time to try to prevent the, right. the Kennedy assassination. So actually, Catherine, I'll start with you. Um, and he thinks that he can just change this one thing. But it be, does become an act of alternative history in the sense of saying, oh, no, you can't just change one thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting one because the idea seems to be, um, as it works out, as a thought experiment works out, that there are some little things you can change because, I mean, it starts with people making changes in private life, you know, the co- cost of goods and things like that. But then it turns out that big things you actually can't change. So there's some way in which the structure of the history is going to keep rolling back uh, toward our world instead of away from us. Um, so it's almost, it's, it's odd, it's mm. almost a kind of failed alternate history novel. Yeah, Ben, react That's to that. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I actually don't know that novel well. Um, I would, it reminded me, though, because there's a novel called Kindred by Octavia Butler, mm. uh, which, which right. I, I know, cause it, and I, I read in preparing this novel, because it deals with slavery and with, with the way that the legacy of slavery plays out today. And, in that, and that's also a time travel novel. You have a young African-American woman in 19, the 1970s who goes back in time through a portal and um, experiences um, the life of an enslaved person uh, in, uh, in, in the antebellum South. And so I think, though, that what's interesting is the idea that you can have a personal um, time travel experience. You can go back and it doesn't change the ultimate outcome of history. You know, that what's the you know, that butterfly effect notion that one little thing will change everything doesn't necessarily prove to be true in these kinds of books, which is like it's like a sub genre of speculative fiction, the sort of time travel. What if? Um, I do want to do a shout out. Uh, I, it's so obscure. I doubt anybody has read it except me. But um, I might be the only person alive. Uh, there's a short story by R. A. Lafferty called "Thus We Frustrate Charlemagne." It's about this group of scientists and a computer who are who are interested in changing the past, and they're able to do it. Uh, and uh, you keep coming back to them when they change something, uh, and they say, "Well, nothing changed here in the present." But in fact, everything is radically different uh, from from how they began at the beginning of the story. They just don't know that, uh, and they keep wow. changing it and changing it and changing it. And every single time, eventually they're reduced to this almost, you know, uh, prehistoric uh, level of superstition and magic. And they they don't have computers anymore. They have like strange little, you know, masks and things. And they're just there are a couple of those time travel ones that have to do with race in America as well. John Jakes wrote something called uh, Black in Time. It came out in 1970, wrote it in 1968. uh, 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 A year like this year that had plenty of. a racial tension in it. Uh, and in that one, too, there's, there's a constant drive backward to change the racial status quo through a time machine. So. 
I'm, I'm, yeah, we're going to try to get that one down. Uh, we're going to try to get uh, Sherry back into the mix here. Uh, Sherry Kramer, uh, welcome back to the conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Thank you. we can hear you better now. Um, it, when you're teaching this at Bennington, I mean, do you what, do you tell your students what to write about, or do they decide what they want to write about, and 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 what do they want to write about? Well, they, the only um, limit to the prompt is that they have to write about someone, either someone famous or someone in their. Um, family who was born after 1935, so it's someone who's reasonably uh, alive today, and then they are asked to make one choice that this person makes different, and then to follow the, the downstream consequences of that choice and, in their play. And, and typically, do you, I mean, do you have some examples of, of things that they've chosen? Yes. They've, it, 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 it's been quite stunning. I had a playwright who um, wrote a play about Steve Jobs. And she had him uh, when he's when his girlfriend gets pregnant with the child, the first uh, the first girlfriend. He stops work on the computer and instead decides he wants to be a father, and the and, and be full time involved. And instead of doing everything else that he does, he ends up revolutionizing the foster care system in this country. The so he takes his huge brain and puts it to a different solution and changes America just like. Apple did, yeah. but in a different way. Give us another one. Then we have, um, I have a student who decided that he wanted to write about Eleanor Roosevelt leaving uh, Franklin because she was gay. And I said, sorry, she's born too early. So he said, well, what about Lady Bird Johnson? I said, go for it. <laughs> and so he wrote this fabulous play, which is about America, of course. Um, and Lady Bird leaves her husband and goes off with her lover to explore America. Um, just stunning, and so they're they're really quite interesting because what they're they're always about is not ultimately it's not about the change. They tend to write plays about much bigger things than if they had just started to write a traditional play, because it's it's a really I consider it um, the plays that are most about choice and consequences are the most moral um, in our art form um, about moral issues. Um- Catherine, I want to ask you a question before we go to break that I suppose the answer is kind of obvious, but I'd love to hear your your fleshed out thoughts about it. As you study this stuff, I mean, it must invest you with a very powerful attitude about, you know, back to Ben's evocation of chaos theory, of this sense in which of how much of life, how much of established life and the history that precedes it is kind of, if not arbitrary, at least linked to all this highly conditional stuff, all this stuff that, that happened one way instead of another way. Yeah, I think one does become hyper-conscious of that, and one becomes hyper-conscious of the nexus points that are coming up in history, too, and not just the ones in the past. And the more you study the ones in the past, the more you see that people um, were very often blind to the consequences of what they were about to do. So it does it does create a certain kind of uh, historical caution, let's put it that way, um, I think, in everybody who studies it. <laughs> when you say about nexus points coming up, Catherine, I, I assume you're thinking you're, you have in mind the most obvious ones sitting right yes. in front of us. Right. Uh, the one that well, the one that people seem to realize is the kind of nexus point, the one where people are constantly talking about what the past uh, comparisons are, um, and yeah. So I think it's impossible not to see it that way. I do think that there's a kind of 
alternate history imagination that has seeped into our political culture now. So we do a lot more comparison with the past. Well, yeah, and Ben, that's a, a great point that she's making, and I know that I've done it too. Or, or we we kind of fact check ourselves about it. So, you know, is Trump like Mussolini? Well, he's not exactly like Mussolini, but right. he's like Mussolini right. this way. And right. Ben, he's been compared to everybody: to Mussolini, to Berlusconi, to Hitler, yeah. to Stalin, right. you know, right. to Mao. Yeah. yeah. But I think that assumes a level of historical understanding that most of us who are making the comparisons either haven't really, we haven't, you know, delved into it deeply or we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> we just picked right. some really scary name. It could be General Zod from Superman, too. You know? um, he bears a lot of resemblance to Zod, actually, and to oh, Lex Luthor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. At the... Uh, the sheriff last night from Wisconsin definitely uh, was from General Zod's army. All right, so we have to take a little break right now. We're going to come back with more of this conversation, so stay with us. If you could go back in time and change the outcome of one historical event, which would you choose and why? Assassination of JFK. We don't know what JFK would have done if he lived longer as president. I would choose to change the president that we have now because he's weak. Probably have to be like when I was nine years old, started noticing that my dad was like getting, I don't know, a little bit weaker every now and then, playing it off as if nothing was happening. Yeah. If I could go back, I'd tell him to like have gone to the hospital earlier so that he could have been diagnosed with cancer earlier. Rise of Adolf Hitler, uh, prevent that from happening. I think it's pretty clear that he led to a lot of deaths in Europe and a real change in the political environment in Europe. All right, we're back. Time for me to say some thank yous. Josh Nalea uh, is the guy who produced this show. Uh, Betsy Kaplan's on the board today. Greg Hill is tweeting for us at WNPR Colin. We'd love to hear your thoughts about alternative history. Uh, you can tweet right at us at WNPR Colin. Uh, intern, I can't really see. Is it Esther? I don't know who it is. Somebody's on the board. Uh, somebody's taking phone calls right now and, and manning the phones and obviously doing a really good job of it. I just can't happen to see who it is right now. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was not really played so much by anybody, but in our alternative of history. He's now a Roman Catholic cardinal. Uh, and um, I, I also want to quickly mention that tomorrow, it's unlikely that your life will take you up there at this particular moment, but maybe it will in, in this current t- contemporary history. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be in Lenox, Massachusetts, in the beautiful Berkshires at 1 p.m. We're going to do kind of our regular show, but we're going to do a show about The Merchant of Venice, which they're doing a remarkable production of uh, up there. It's one of those plays. It, it, in a weird way, it kind of fits into some of the conversation we've had today. It's, it, this is an incredible production, which you watch and say, I'm, this is so amazing. On the other hand, should anybody ever do this play ever again? Uh, both of those things are kind of there. We'll be doing the show from the Bernstein Theater Studio 3 up there at the Shakespeare and Company Complex. We'd love to have you drop by. There will be a live audience for this play. It's not not going to be our show tomorrow. Our show tomorrow is about about sepsis, and actually, it's another show you should listen to. It could save your life, but um, kind of apropos of the the Vox that we just heard, it's something you should know about. So that's going to be running while we're up in Lennox. Come up and join us. Now, here's here's how I can uh, segue from Shakespeare and Company to uh, in Lennox uh, to our contemporary topic or our, the the thing that's on our plate right now, and that is um, the notion uh, of alternative history. So one of the names that we haven't mentioned uh, as we've been going through this. Um, is one of the titans now of this world is a guy named Harry Turtledove. I had 
one at my bird feeder this morning, uh, and he writes uh, about uh, all kinds of things, including a, a novel in which William Shakespeare uh, is part of Britain that's been conquered by the Spanish Armada, and he has to write a play that will motivate the Britons to rise up against their Spanish conquerors. I haven't read this uh, book, but I kind of want to read it now. It's, it's called uh, Ruled Britannia. Anyway, we're talking about uh, alternative history right now. Uh, we've been talking to Ben Winters, whose uh, new book is Underground Airlines, uh, joining the conversation. We still have uh, Catherine with us, uh, by the way, uh, but uh, joining the conversation along with Catherine Gallagher, uh, pro- Professor Emeritus at UC Berkeley is, I have to scroll around in my notes right now. I'm doing kind of a lot of things at once here. Uh, but uh, joining us now is Stephen Silver, founder, administrator, and judge of the Sidewise Awards for Best Alternative History. So, Stephen Silver, this is pretty amazing. This this subgenre or whatever it is we want to call it is big enough now that 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 people compete to win this award. Uh, yes, Colin. Thank you. Um, the Sidewise Award has actually been going on for about twenty years. Uh, when we started it, uh, it was much more of a niche, and we kind of viewed it as uh, an offshoot of science fiction. Partly because so much science fiction has. Uh, explored alternate history, and a lot of the authors who write alternate history um, do write in science fiction. Um, And it uses a lot of the same tropes. What if this? It's just instead of saying, what if we could travel faster than light, we say, what if this had happened differently in history? Um, So we've been doing it for 20 years. You mentioned Rule Britannia, which uh, did win the Sidewise Award several years ago when it first came out. Okay, so is Harry Harry Turtledove his real name? Harry Turtledove is his real name. Wow. Uh, and, and did he come to the award ceremony? Uh, Harry's been to several of the award ceremonies. Yeah. Um, uh, we give them out each year at the World Science Fiction Convention. Uh, the next one will be next month. Uh, actually, one month from uh, tomorrow, I think, is when we're going to be giving out this year's awards at uh, the World Science Fiction Convention in Kansas City. It's called MetAmericon 2. Okay. So is Underground Airlines eligible this year, or does it have to wait till next year? Underground Airlines and other alternate histories that were published in 2016 are eligible for the award that will be given out at next year's uh, uh, convention. So, Ben Winters, you have to start doing those for your consideration uh, advertisements. Right? <laughs> I'll have to. I'll have to see how much my lobbying budget affords me this year. Yeah, don't. Well, well, Ben, we're, we're a small jury of about six people. Um, so, you know, it's not a matter of a popular vote. It's six people who are extremely well read in the field. And we reach out to all the publishers to try to get as many of the books uh, sent to us as we can so that we can read as much as we can. So uh, let me just ask this. I'm going to ask all three of you, but I'm going to start with you, Catherine Gallagher. I mean, we're almost out of time, but the appropriate question, I think, to ask in this context is what makes this kind of an undertaking uh, succeed or fail? If you're going to do alternative history, what has to be there for it to be a success? I'll ask all three of you, but, but Catherine, you get us started. Well, I think that the um, I think that the historical question being asked has to be one that's resonant today. But I think it really does have to be something that people are interested in. For example, could there have been a different history that would have made race relations in America better or worse? Uh, could there have been a different kind of European settlement uh, in the Second World War. Um, all those questions have to be there. This, Second, yeah, it, um, I think the reason that the worlds tend to be more dystopian than utopian is it has to be a world where there's a, the possibility of plot of some kind. So this kind of slightly dystopian world where you have some kind of hope that it could revert, that it could get better, is really important. Uh, thirdly, you do have to, obviously, you have to have a character you're interested in 
But you should also have a character, and this is why I think the detective or spy character has become very popular in these novels, who can get you around in this world, who has special kinds of access to the way in which it's constructed. Um, and then I think, last of all, you have to be a good writer. And I think that's one of the terrifically good things about um, about Underground Airlines is that it's um, really very good writing. Yeah, Ben, so, ben Winters, you're four for four on this. So, Stephen Silver, how about you? Are there things that you would add to or embellish on Catherine's account? I, I would agree with most of what Catherine said, if not all of it. Um, you do need to find something that people know. Um, Americans tend to be somewhat... They're very literate historically in certain areas, uh, which is why you see a lot of alternate histories that talk about the Civil War or World War II. There are other areas that they don't have as much background in. And if you try to base an alternate history on one of those areas, there's a lot more heavy lifting that you have to do. And you wind up having to explain a lot more of the background. And because of the way this works, and again, Catherine mentioned the idea of having uh, private investigators and spies, they can look for secrets. They can look for things that are hidden which allows them to give the reader the information about the changes that they know. But no matter how good your scenario is, it's only a scenario until you add on that level of plot, the level of writing, the characters, and that's really what has to grab the reader and bring them in. And so, and Stephen, all kidding aside, this guy, Harry Turtledove, he's become uh, the, the, the Tyrannosaurus of this genre, right? I mean, he writes, he's written a lot of these. Yes, he has. Um, and so, uh, so Ben Winters, is this something, well, first of all, I mean, I think you've already answered the question, what you think makes a book good. I mean, it really is all the kind of organic flesh and bones that, that both of the other answerers have, have said. I don't know. Is there anything else you would want to add to that? No, I think the, um, both Professor Gallagher and Stephen were right. Like, it just has to, I would just highlight that it has to matter. There has to be something that we care about and that, that has some moral or, or philosophical resonance in the real world. It, it can't just, in my opinion... A book like this, it can't just be sort of an exercise in cleverness. Ooh, wouldn't it be interesting this instead of this? There has to be, let's put this instead of this in order to explore something that matters, um, something that resonates with us now. I'm wondering, Ben, whether you feel, you're going to feel tempted to go back down this road again. I mean, I don't know whether there are going to be sequels involving some of the characters in this book, but, but even a, a different scenario. Was this enough fun so that you'd do it again, or was it such a big headache that you would never do it again? It was neither fun nor a headache. Um, I, for now, I think I have said what I have to say in this world, and it's not um, necessarily the easiest place to, to live in as a writer um, because of that, of the sort of residence that I keep talking about. Like, these are, these are um, you know, very difficult, painful questions, right? So although the world building was fun and there was a really a level of, of challenge as a writer that was engaging, I'm not rushing to jump back into this um, world as a writer. You know, never say never, but it's um, for now, I think that this, this book stands alone. Um, you, you just, I have only enough time for a title and author and maybe just quickly subject, but Catherine Gallagher, one more historical alternative novel you would recommend somebody read? Uh, I, I really think that Wardmore's Bring the Jubilee, the 1952 uh, reverse outcome Civil War novel, is uh, in many ways a great novel and a, a great piece of uh, social criticism. All right, of, I'm going to. I'm just going to. I'm going to stop you. Just Stephen Silver, you got 10 seconds. Uh, recommend okay, one more. Obviously, I would say go back and take a look at all the Sidewise Award winners from the last 20 years, but I would also point out the short story Sidewise in Time, which we used as the basis for the awards yeah. title by Murray Leinster. It's a short story. All right. We are really out of time in this history and any other. Uh, thanks oh, very I much. Get, I don't get to recommend one? Oh, uh, no. You, you get to recommend your own book. 
Uh, okay. Well, so, okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, you can email me the one that you were going to recommend. We'll put it up on the website, Ben. We really are out of time. Thanks to everybody who helped. <laughs>